0: And welcome to Designer Psychology, the podcast exploring the space between design and psychology. My name's Paul Davis, the design psychologist. This episode is slightly different to the others in the fact it's a live talk that I gave at the Etch Summer Summit. Etch are a great UK design agency who specialise in human-centred solutions, so they actually get involved with psychology and not just technology and they very kindly asked me to come along to their summer summit to talk about the brain. The topic of the whole afternoon was about persuasion, and they had a huge amount of speakers coming in to talk about persuasion in all areas, including search optimization, content optimization, and lots of other areas. And I came in just right at the end to talk about the brain. The Summer Summit is something special for Etch. They invite all their clients along. It's a very, very casual afternoon where everyone's dressed in hula skirts and Hawaiian shirts and they have cocktails and actually just relax and get to listen to some key speakers talking about the topic. I had the enviable task of being last in the afternoon of talks, after many people had cocktails and beers and had suddenly relaxed into the afternoon. So I wanted to keep it light but I would still wanted to talk about the brain and how that helps us persuade us in different ways. I titled the talk, You're five studies away from doubting every decision you've ever made. As with every live talk, I had a script, but I didn't stick to it. I kind of went off at tangents in certain places. So at the end of the podcast, I would just fill in those gaps, talk a little bit more about some of the facts that I missed and definitely give references that if you're interested in any of the things that I brought up in here, including the five studies I mentioned, you can look them up and actually get the real facts. So pop on your hula skirt, pour yourself a pina colada, and get yourself in the mood for the Etch Summer Summit 2019. Thank you. So it seems that the only thing now standing between you and the weekend is me, so I thought I can either be really super interesting, and therefore time's going to go really quick for you, or just quick. <laughs> I don't quite know where I've hit the balance, so you can kind of tell me afterwards. But I'm going to talk about the brain, as Adam said. Anyone knows me, kind of knows that I'm going to talk about the brain, because I talk about it a lot. I came in and Mike said, are you talking about the brain? I, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> but I've kind of challenged myself this time. I myself to give you five studies. And I've just picked five psychological studies to make you doubt every decision that you've ever made and you ever will make. And I'm gonna do it in about 10 minutes to quarter of an hour. And I do this because the brain's the most complex machine there ever is. But we kind of know so little about it. In fact, any of you watch natural history documentaries? They kind of use the adage sometimes that we seem to know more about space than we do about the seas that are around us. And they use that analogy to show us why are we so immersed in the distant things that are so far away from us when the seas are all around us and we don't know much about them. What fascinates me is we know more about the sea than we do about what's inside of here. And it's only really in the last 15 to 20 years with the advance in uh, scanning technology and fMRI that neuroscientists and scientists can start to look at what the brain does without it being dead. Before, they can just cut it up and take it out of the head. So it's only really recently we've been able to look at the brain. So it's no wonder we don't really know much about it. But that is strikingly odd. And so if we don't know much about it, what hope have I got in an afternoon when everyone's had a bit of a drink to try and tell you anything about it? Well, I'm not going to really. I thought, I'm not going to try and give you five steps that you can go and persuade your customers. I'm not going to try and give you secret hints of how to cajole your patrons and the people using your websites. I just thought I'd be quite interesting, and if there's something you can go away and share in the pub, there's a study that this crazy chap stood in front of us and told us. That's kind of all right. I've done my job, really. And I'm going to do that by introducing you to this fella. And I introduced you to my brain because my brain is bigger than your brain. <laughs> Some of you have seen it, it's over here. Miles, could I ask you to hold my brain? <laughs> 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 if you hold it that way up, he will fall apart, so hold him tightly. Okay. So, this is a human brain. Oh, wow, it's heavy. <laughs> it is heavy, isn't it? It's about two and a half times the size of our brain in here. Uh, hold it up so people can see it. Kind of people recognize the brain. They've seen it probably in Line of Duty, maybe zombies eating it in films. To be more realistic, inside of here, I've got a more realistic brain. That's the exact size of our brain. It's the exact weight of our brain. And it's roughly the consistency of a brain as well, which you don't think. So, do you want to pass it around? People can have a... (laughs) It's not a real brain, I promise. I promise. (laughs) Not allowed a real brain. They won't let me have one. It is heavy, it's about three pounds, and that's inside your head. When you look at it, if you get the same sort of feeling that I have, when you just hold it in your hands and go, that's in there, and it's doing everything, it's holding me up, it's, it's making me see all of you, it's making me think, it's making me wonder, why did I wear a waistcoat today, it's really hot. <laughs> it's doing lots and lots of things, and yet we don't really know what it's doing. So I'm gonna use the big one, as you pass it around, I'm gonna use this one to start explaining a little bit, to introduce to it, and then I'm gonna go through some five studies. So first of all, thank you Marsball. Very, very handy there. Right. So first of all, we've got the process of cephalisation. That's a, just a posh word for when the brain grows in the womb and afterwards as well. It forms from the spinal cord. And am I gonna give you that Tristan? Take it. There you go. <laughs> look at this, look at this. So the spinal cord comes up. Oh that's my that's my pituitary gland. <laughs> That's my motor cortex, you gonna put that there. That's the bit I'm interested in at the moment. The spinal cord comes up here. And actually, it forms your hind brain. And in your hind brain, it deals with all your automatic responses. So your breathing, your heart rate, your pupil dilation, your sweat. And you have no conscious awareness of that. It deals with it for you. And if you did have conscious awareness of it, you'd probably go mad because it's far too much for you to take in at once. It does the job without you knowing it. And first of all, that's weird. But then we go on to the next part of the brain. And encephalization the next part of the brain to form is the midbrain, which is this sort of structure you can see in the middle, obviously well-named, the limbic structures. And you've probably heard of things like the hippocampus, the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the amygdala, they're all in there. In a very general introduction, that's where your emotion sits. That's what makes you love things, that's what makes you hate things. Road rage, this is the bit that makes you do what you want to do. Afterwards, your frontal cortex goes, oh, why did I swear at that driver? Why did I give the Vs up and they followed me all the way home? (laughs) Didn't happen to me, I promise. Um, That's this bit. And finally then, you've got the bit we probably recognise the most, which is the two hemispheres of the cerebral cortex, the wiggly pink bit. And when you finally get the brain, wherever it is at the moment, who's got the brain? Okay, nice. How's it feel? Squidgy, Yeah, real ones feel squidgy as well. I, as part of my degree, we have to cut up brains, so that's another story. Um, finally, what happens is this bit comes out of the back and it flops over the top of the, of the head. And this is the bit that we're kind of used to in the brain. And the bit that's kind of important is the frontal cortex is where our rationality, our consciousness sits. So that's kind of where we are. The bit that you think or even the little voice in your head, that's where that is. Thank you very much. You can look after that for now. Thanks. I mentioned the two hemispheres, and one bit I can't show you because it's not on my model. (laughs) When somebody drops your spinal cord, what do you do? (laughs) The bit I don't mention is the corpus callosum. The corpus callosum is actually joining the two hemispheres together, and it's a huge bundle of fibres that lets the left hemisphere talk to the right hemisphere. Hugely important in us, and one area that I go on, another thing I bang on about, is the myth about left brain, right brain people. It is an utter myth. You can look it up online. There's far cleverer people that'll tell you why it is. But generally, it's a myth because we have this corpus callosum. We have it. It lets the two brains communicate to each other. So actually, whilst we have two hemispheres, and they do kind of specialize in areas, they talk to each other. So geography in the brain is kind of useless when you have this bit. That's kind of what I just want to get that bit over with when I go into study one. Study one talks about split-brain patients, actually for my first two studies do. Now a split-brain patient is somebody who's had the corpus callosum cut and severed completely in their brain. Separating the left hemisphere from the right hemisphere, they can no longer talk to each other. Now psychologists aren't cruel enough just to do this out of a bit of fun. Actually in the 60s, they thought it was going to be a really good way of stopping severe epilepsy. Because the case of epilepsy is electrical activity starts to spread through the brain, a bit like a Mexican wave. And they thought by cutting the connection between the two hemispheres, it would stop it sweeping across the whole brain and therefore help the person who suffers from epilepsy. And it kind of worked. Well, it didn't kill them, so that's a good start. And they were perfectly functioning afterwards, but they were a bit strange. And it gave psychologists a really good set of subjects to start to study from. But the left brain, right brain isn't the case because, whilst in the split brain studies they have the corpus callosum split, so that's where it comes from, we don't. We have this bit. And I just wanted, I didn't want you to go away saying, Paul talked about the left brain, right brain, and I think I'm left brain analytical rather than right brain creative. That's not the case. But let's go into this one. I think I've got left brain, right brain. No. But they got these split-brain patients, and they put them in a set of apparatus, much like you go to the optometrist and they let you look through a device, which means they can show things into either eye. What it meant, they can put subjects or uh, uh, materials, objects, words, into either the left field of vision or the right field of vision. Now the way our optic nerve just behind your eyes works is it crosses over, so anything coming in your left field of vision goes to the right hemisphere of the brain. Everything coming from the right goes to the left hemisphere. And the left hemisphere does specialize. It specializes generally in lots of things, but for this case, language is the important bit. Now, what they showed in, the, in one side, in the left side, is an apple. And in the other side, they showed nothing. And they asked them, what did we just show you? Now, people with split brains say, you didn't show me anything. I mean, there's nothing there. Because you are asking them and they are responding verbally to you, and the verbal side of the brain has not seen the apple because there's no connection between the two hemispheres. Now that's kind of weird, isn't it? When our language-strong hemisphere can't see it, we can't give that response. They don't know what to do with it. However, when they were asked, here's a bag of objects, just random objects, can you pick out an object you've just seen? pick up an apple. 100% of the time they will pick up an apple. If the left side of the body is dealt with from the right side of the brain and the right side of the brain just saw the apple, and yet they do not know why they've just done that. It gets weirder, that's the first one. They moved on, still with split-brain patients. This time they showed a picture of a snowy scene on one side and a chicken foot on the other don't really know why a chicken foot, but they they definitely did. And they said, what have you just seen? And people said, you just showed me a chicken foot. I said, great. Here's a bag of objects again. Pick out an object. And what people did consistently was pick out the object, which was a shovel, with their left hand. And they said, why did you just pick a shovel out? I mean, they have just seen themselves pick this shovel out. And they said, oh, okay, um... It's because, I I think you need a shovel, don't you, to, to clear out the chicken sheds. Or explanations like that to do with the chicken. Because they've seen the chicken, they haven't seen the snowy picture. And yet they will quite happily and fluently give an explanation, which absolutely isn't true. Because when we go back to the first one, when they don't see anything over here, they cannot give an explanation, they do not see anything. And yet that part of the brain, this interpreting part of the brain, and give us a very natural and fluid explanation for a decision that we just didn't make. It's persuaded us, and we fully believe that to happen. And that's kind of interesting. Split brain patients allow us to isolate that behavior, but we're not like that, so we need to move on to some normal people. Oh, there you go. Even when the left hemisphere is no possible insight, <coughs> it invents that explanation. So let's do better, let's do better than normal people, let's do Swedish people. (laughs) Slightly obsessed with meatballs, but other than that, perfectly normal. So what they did in 2013, in the lead-up to the Swedish general election, they looked at people's voting behaviour, and they asked normal participants to come in, and first of all, they said to them, there was at that point a coalition, are you intending to vote for the left-leaning or the right-leaning coalition government? And they gave their opinion. They were then asked to complete a questionnaire on various topics to do with the campaign, such as tax, healthcare, education, and so forth. This is where the sneaky bit of the experimenters came in. When they gave their papers in, it's sort of like multiple choice or, or like at scales, and you say strongly dislike and you circle things. They sort of scan them into this scanner to show that we're going to record this. And the paper came out the bottom, and they gave them back. The paper that came out the bottom was not the same one that they put in the top. They manipulated it so that whatever degree they had, left-leaning or right-leaning, the opposite answers came out the bottom, and they handed them back to the people. and said, thank you very much. Uh, We're now going to go into the final phase of the study. Could you explain some of the answers you gave? Now, some people spotted it. About a quarter of the participants spotted that, hang on a sec, I didn't say that, and they, they questioned it. Three-quarters of the people did not spot that their answers that they gave were different. And when they were asked to explain it, they were quite happy defending the positions that the paper just told them, that they didn't actually choose. So whilst they chose a left-leaning tax uh, question, it came back to them and said, oh, I've chosen a right, very right-wing. Well, I, I, you know, actually, I think that. I really do. Um, I believe that. So it happens in us in, an, in normal life that the part of our brain which is interpreting the world around us and the feedback we get is making up an explanation. Study four. If anyone's wondering what the background of, is this, of this, it's a uh, study they did on women's brains under orgasm. So that is a woman's brain <laughs> under fMRI scan having an orgasm. Um, I do wonder how they got the grant money for that study, It seems <laughs> hard one, but it's great for a background. This one, moving away from voting, a group of participants come in, and they said, OK, we're going to show you a couple of pictures of uh, a couple of women, and both male and females took part, and they asked, which one do you find the most attractive? And they would point at the one that they're most attractive. Now, through a slight sort of magician's sleight of hand, they were then handed one of the cards the card was the opposite person that they had just chosen so as you can see here the person points at the slightly curly haired lady gets the lady with the straight hair back first weird thing is less than a quarter of the of people noticed the change and said well that isn't what I just chose and it just happened and they just pointed and got given it to it and then they were asked why did you choose this person why is this person attractive to you and they would go on happily to explain why that person was the most attractive person out of those two people, even though it was not the person that they had just chosen. So when they say things like, well I chose her because of her long curly hair, that can't possibly be an explanation of their past choice when the woman that they chose had long straight hair. So what on earth is going on at this point? So that's kind of like the Swedish voting system, but this goes a step further. It goes a step further because the next part was they showed people lots of the photographs in pairs. And what people tend to, and, and they asked the same question, which you just pick the one out of each pair that you find the most attractive. The choice and the explanation that they gave swayed their decision from that point onwards. So if they chose the straight-haired lady, got given the curly-haired lady, and said, well, it's curly hair that I like. They then went on to choose curly-haired people from that point onwards, fully believing that they are attracted to curly-haired people (laughs) when their choice at the beginning was not. And these aren't drugged people, these aren't drunk people, these are just participants going in and being normal. Now, it's kind of not that relevant, I suppose, the sort of choice of attractiveness. But what may be more relevant? There you go. To this future choices. What's scary is when you go into voting again, So a study was done around the 2008 U.S. presidential elections. People were asked to come in again and say, okay, what's your sort of feeling on the elections? And it's about eight months in the future was the actual vote going to happen, and they were asked which way. And they were either sort of more Democratic-leaning, again sort of more left-leaning, or maybe right-wing on the Republican side, and they just noted that down. Then they were asked to fill in an online survey, about their feelings, once again, to taxation, to nationalism. But half the surveys just had a little photograph at the top of the American flag. And half of them did not. What they found was, nobody mentioned the flag at all. But every single person who saw that significantly moved their views to be more Republican. Because the national flag of America is generally seen as a little bit of a Republican symbol. It sort of symbolizes nationalism, security of the nation. And so when you've just seen this in the top corner, not drawn attention to it at all, it's just been there, people who came in and said that they were actually Democratic-leaning moved towards being Republican. And the ones that were Republican went even more Republican. And the scary thing is, eight months later, the people that went into that study and were persuaded by this flag, and their brain told them what just happened, they went on to vote for real, in the US election, in the way that they've just been persuaded to through this experiment. And they went afterwards, so three months after the election, they were asked to come back and asked why and how's it going. Their views had changed completely from the very first time that they came in to the session saying, I'm a Democrat, I believe in democratic beliefs. And they voted Republican and suddenly they were going, actually the Republican tax system is really good and actually things work really well. They had changed the way that they act. But they don't consciously do it and this is what I find kind of fascinating. Who's persuading who in this sort of respect? Because there's no external forces apart from the flag there. It's our brain. It's our interpretation part of the brain that's interpreting things, explaining it and feeding it back to us. And if you don't think I'm signing as a sort of a crackpot yet, now it's going to happen from here because... What could be happening, and what a lot of the psychologists are saying at the moment, is that we have this view of ourselves as being like an iceberg, where all the decisions, all the behaviours and actions that we have are this tip of the iceberg, and our hidden depths underneath, our beliefs, our identity, our values, are all hidden. And it's just the visible bit that people see, which is our actions and behaviours. And we think that that's what's happening. But psychologists are saying it might not be. We may have no hidden depths. We may have no values. We may have no identity from which we make decisions. We just make decisions at that moment and then we post-rationalize it afterwards. And if we do that enough, it becomes the thing we tend to do until something, a sneaky psychologist comes along and tries to change it. And even when we change it, we don't know it's just changed. We think that's what we've always believed. Now that's kind of scary. So what are the implications of that, if that's true? Well, market research, asking people what they think about things, that's an industry that shouldn't really live any longer, because if you ask people, they're quite happy to give you an explanation, but it's not going to be true, you don't know what the truth is. So that's kind of a worrying bit. And the next bit is, if anyone works in finance, there's such a thing as an attitude to risk questionnaire. An attitude to risk questionnaire is try and gauge what your attitude, what your belief is about risk. Now, if you believe in this hidden depth side of it, then that's kind of fine. A questionnaire might delve into that and pop it out. If the psychologists are right and there's no hidden depths, then there's no attitude to risk to try and find out at that point. You just make a decision about your investment or whatever it may be at the point you make it. And that's where things like the wording in the questionnaire, the ordering of things, setting something as a loss or setting something as a gain, can actually start to move people's decisions around. So that's kind of it really. I I, I didn't want to scare you on a Friday, but I did promise that I'll make you doubt everything. So I don't know if I've achieved that. The good news is that there is a mechanism, we've got it here, which can try and overcome all this. Um, and what that does, it releases endorphins into your brain and it uh, binds them to the opiate receptors and makes everything feel much better. Yes, it's the Jägermeister machine over there. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, will help everything much better. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you for listening. I hope that was interesting enough for you to go and tell people in the pub. <laughs> So that was my talk at the Etch Summer Summit 2019. You heard a couple of points that are maybe not so good for an audio podcast, where I handed around a uh, real-life brain. It's not real, but it feels really real, and it's very tactile, and it always gets a reaction from the audience, as you heard there. I got the idea for the talk after reading the book The Mind is Flat by Nick Chater. Nick is the Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick University and I really recommend picking up the book. It's very well written and actually presents a a very counterintuitive argument both against a lot of the ideas of cognitive neuroscience and psychology but also our own intuition of who we are and why we do what we do. I recommend it thoroughly but so do others such as Radio 4's and Financial Times's Tim Harford which said on the back of the cover that it blew his mind. Thank you so much to Etch for inviting me down, letting me babble on about the brain to their clients and their team, and just having a fun afternoon with cocktails and the whole team there, including a huge flamingo, which you can see actually in a short video they created, which is up on YouTube. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes, as well as a link to Etch themselves, but you can get to them at etchuk.com and see what they do, what they get up to, and how they help their clients engage with psychology as well as technology. Thanks again for listening. You can find all the references that I mentioned uh, in the talk from this episode in the show notes at designerpsychology.com. And if design and psychology is your sort of thing, why don't you join others on designerpsychology.com reading about topics such as should a designer have morals, and does psychology hold the secret to good copywriting? And you can catch up with some deeper reading by picking books from the designer psychology library. If you're interested in writing an article, reviewing a book, or telling everyone about a project that connects design and psychology in some way, I'm always on the lookout for contributors to join the designer psychology team. You can contact me on Twitter at designer Psych, and also on Facebook and Instagram at designer psychology although to be fair i'm not very good at the facebook so that's a bit behind but you can email me on hello at designer also and if you'd like to leave a review on the itunes website that really helps the podcast thank you to all the feedback i had so far uh, especially on the last episode with dr robert epstein that seemed to get a lot of interest from people and dr epstein has agreed to come back soon and we're going to talk about the mind. He's recently wrote an article on the brain itself. So it'd be good to sort of combine his ideas with Nick Chater's. I'm hoping to get that into a podcast soon. Thanks again for listening. i see you next time.